We'll be in Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be beginning in verse 17 if you need to type that in. Hebrews 11. So um, here at Redeemer, most of you know, we, we just kind of teach through books of, of the Bible, chapter by chapter, um, working our way through it over however many weeks or months is necessary. And so we've been in Hebrews most of the fall, um, working our way through this letter. We know it was written most likely before 70 AD to a Jewish background um, church, folks who had used to been Jews and are now believers. Um, and they're, they're suffering some persecution, some struggle, some issue. And they're beginning to ask the question of, should we leave Christianity? Should we go back to Judaism, which is legal and under the Roman rule, or should we stay with Christianity? And so the author of Hebrews is writing this just very well thought out argument, working his way through that Jesus is better than the sacrificial system, that Jesus is better than the priestly system, that Jesus is better than the prophets. And he just continues to go back to what they know in their Jewish past in the Old Testament and is building this argument of saying, look, if you go back, you're actually leaving the means of salvation, that you're leaving the better thing, the, the real thing, and you're going back to the, the shadow, the semblance of the thing. And so he's just built this argument, this exhortation. And so in chapter 10, we saw a warning where he says, look, there is no other salvation if you leave Jesus. He is the way. And so he's warning them, saying, this could happen, don't do it. And he's also encouraging them. And he's saying, but we're not those people. We're not going to shrink back. We're going to stand firm and we're going to persevere to the end and we're going to do it together. And so chapter 11, where we started last week, is he just begins to lay out for them some heroes of their past, of their remembrance, of their faith, and how they showed faith, how they walked in faith. And he's looking to say, look, they had less than you had because you have Jesus now. And yet they stood strong and they persevered and they showed faith. And be reminded in in verse 1 of what he describes faith as, right, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. He's saying, look, we don't hope in the things that we see. We hope in the things we can't yet see. And so we're hoping in the promises of God. And so he laid out five examples. We're going to pick up this week in verse 17, where he's going to continue to lay out some examples of faith for them to walk in. And we're going to see eight um, this morning. So let's pick up in verse 17. By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, 
not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he had endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. Because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. I'm going to stop there. And so what we, we see is that the author is going to continue to go back into the memory banks of those who have a Jewish past. And he's going to continue to bring out stories and remembrances of things that they would have known well. And examples of how God was working and how they were exhibiting faith even prior to Christ. Right? Because we saw last week that the Old Testament saints were saved in the same way that we are. In faith in a Redeemer. Faith that God was going to deliver and do what only he could do. And so they were looking forward to that. And we get to look back on that. That Jesus has done what he promised to do. That he has come for us and that through his perfect life, through his obedient death and through his resurrection, that we have salvation obtainable to us. And so he begins with Abraham. Abraham and Moses are two of the, the key Old Testament characters, the, the, those that would have rung the most deeply. And so in verse 17, by faith, Abraham. And so he had told us last week in the first part of chapter 11, right, that Abraham had shown faith by being obedient as a pagan, when he was called by God to just follow and to go after the promised land, even when he didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. And now we get a more specific example even. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, who, and he, sorry, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. So in Genesis 21, in verse 12... This is God speaking to Abraham. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so at this point, what's going on is, remember Abraham had attempted to secure the promises of God through not through the promise that God had given him that he and his wife would have a child, but he went to a handmaiden, a slave, a servant, and had a son Ishmael. And in Genesis 21, 12, what God is saying is, listen, take care of the son, but my promises, the things that I've told you are going to happen, are going to come through Isaac. And so then in Genesis 22, we see this scene where God tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me. And listen, it doesn't get into the, the moral question here. It just is an act of trust, of obedience here. Asking him to, to give. And so in Hebrews we're told that he was willing to do this, right? Because he considered in verse 19 that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And so in Genesis 22, 5, it tells us that it, when he's telling the, the servant, Hey, my son and I, we're going to go over here and we're going to make a sacrifice. Abraham knew what God had called him to, but what he says is, And then we will return. Right? Like that he trusted that if God was going to have him go through with this, that resurrection was going to occur because it was through the line of Isaac that the promises were made. And that was not Abraham's situation to keep. It was God's promise to keep. 
And so he was trusting that God was going to bring about resurrection if he was going to have him go through with this. And if he didn't have another lamb or goat or ram provided. Right? And then he goes on. So he's saying, listen, he had faith. He was seen dimly, but he was trusting in resurrection. And then we go on to Isaac, the son, later in life. And he says that Isaac, um, in verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on his twin boys, Jacob and Esau. So it's saying now this, this grown son of Abraham, at the end of his life, this is Genesis 27, puts a blessing, speaks a blessing over both of his boys. Right, that he's not going to receive all the promises that God has given yet. Remember, we saw this earlier last week in Hebrews 11, that they die not receiving all the promises yet, but they're still putting their faith and their trust and their hope in the one who has made it, that he will be faithful to his word. And then it moves on to Jacob in verse 21. By faith of Jacob when dying. Right now, it's, we're at the end of a third generation. He blessed each of the sons of Joseph. So he's talked about the 12 tribes of Israel now, his 12 sons, that he blesses them in his death. Again, not seen. Jacob was the trickster. If you, if you know much about his past life, he had tricked his father Isaac into giving him the blessing. Right, That he had spent most of his life being treated... Like, Tricking people and working for his own good, his own selfish gains. And yet here now at the end of his life, he is trusting not what's in his hand, but what's in God's hand. And he's passing on a blessing to the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now in verse 22, by faith of Joseph, right? At the end of his life. And he's quoting from Genesis 50. And in Genesis 50... We, we hear what Joseph has to say. The very end of Genesis. In verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you will carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so what we see here is now this fourth generation that has yet to get all the promises that God has promised. They've yet to receive it, to taste it, to have it. But they're trusting that God is faithful. And so as they're in a foreign land, as they are in Egypt, he's telling his sons and and, and the others of the tribe, he's like, listen, there will be a day where God is going to take us out of this place. He's going to remove us from Egypt and he's going to take us to the land that he's promised because God is faithful and he's going to do it. And so what I'm telling you is when that day happens, if it's soon or if it's far, take me with you. Take my bones and go. Right? That he is putting his faith in an exodus that hasn't yet occurred. Trusting the promises and the faithfulness of God. And then in verse 23... We get a a long section that's all about Moses, who was the other primary figure in the Old Testament for the Jews. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Right? And so in in Exodus 2, we have an edict from the Pharaoh. And he's saying, listen, our slaves, the people of Israel, are gaining strong in number. And if they continue to grow this way, there may be a revolt, a rebellion someday. And so we want to begin to weaken them. And so he tells them, listen, kill the, kill the boys. 
Take out the boys, make sure they don't happen. Like they don't live. Whether you throw them in the Nile you, and you kill them in childbirth, whatever you do, wipe out the boys. And yet Moses' parents, right, in, it, with their own life, taking their own lives in their hands, hid Moses for three months and, and took care of him. And then eventually they place him in a basket in the river where he is seen by a member of Pharaoh's court and is adopted into Pharaoh's family and grows up in, in royal treatment. Right now, right under Pharaoh's nose. And listen to what it says about him. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, the slaves of, of Egypt, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And so what happens is, is Moses actually tries to take things into his own hand, and he, he kills a fellow, or he kills an Egyptian. And he leaves Egypt for a while, but what the author of Hebrews is telling us was he didn't leave because he feared his own life or he feared Pharaoh. He left because he knew that the promise was still going to take place, that God was still going to use him, but he had jumped the gun a little bit. And so he leaves because he was trusting the invisible one, right? And so this whole chapter of chapter 11 is meant to be encouraging the people there that this book is written to. And he's saying, listen, I know you can't see all of these things. But these folks are trusting that which they could not see. They're putting their hope and their faith in the things they could not see. And so he says, Moses, right, he's seeing the invisible God. What he's saying is, we're going to look crazy. We talked about this last week. We're going to look crazy sometimes when we see what God is doing in the world. And those around us don't have eyes to see it. When they can't quite make out what it is that we are seeing so clearly. And so Moses, right, he saw God in the burning bush. Right, but he says he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And then it goes down to verse 29. By faith, the people, meaning Israel, crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. This is Exodus 14. And the Egyptians were drowned when they attempted to do so. And then it moves out of this into the beginning of the, the gain of the promised land, which was, had been the hope of the Exodus the whole time. We move into Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. And we have two stories. The story of Jericho and, and the story of the spies kind of going in and looking. And they find Rahab, this woman. So she's heard of what God had done. The, 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 like his exploits and his stories had reached their ears in Canaan. And so she feared God and trusted that he was who he had claimed to be. And so she hides the spies. She keeps them protected. It says, but I would ask that when you come and take our city, that you would spare my life. And so she helps them escape and she protects them as the people are looking for them. And then the story of Jericho, which you may remember from Sunday school, right? When the people of Israel march around the city of Jericho over the course of seven days until the walls come tumbling down, right? This, this um, story that kids love and, and there's so many songs written about and what we're seeing in this section is that faith is demonstrated. Okay, it's not just something that's believed. It's not just something that's known. It's not something that's just nodded at. Faith is demonstrated, right? And so if you have a rickety chair 
and you say, sit down, I can say, well, that's a chair and it should hold me. But if I'm unwilling to sit in the chair, then I'm not exhibiting any faith in the chair. Right? For me, one of my, one of my biggest fears is flying. I hate to fly. And so I can tell you about all the, the good that flying does. Um, and I can talk about that, yeah, I'll get on a plane until it's that moment. Then it's like, okay, am I going to put my faith in this pilot and in this plane and in aerodynamics? Or is that just like I can talk about it when I don't have to do it? Right? Because faith is not something we just nod in agreement at. Faith is something that is demonstrated. It's acted upon. It's shown. Look at these examples, right, of how faith was demonstrated. That Abraham was willing and he trusted in the resurrection. Even when he had not trusted God's plan and had had another kid by another woman. Isaac and Jacob, at their death, they're looking without seeing, right? They're believing and they're passing this on, even though they haven't received it. They're demonstrating it because they're continuing to pass it on from generation to generation. Joseph, who had been known for his pride as a young man, we see sin in him as well, right? Is putting his faith in the fact that God will rescue the people out of Exodus, even though he doesn't have a promise of when that's going to happen. He just says, God has said, we're going to go to the promised land, and this isn't it. So he's going to take us out of this place. He trusted it. He demonstrated it. And so he put his bones literally in other people's hands to say, take me with you. Moses, right, we have so many examples of him demonstrating his faith. Right, one being that he, when God told them, listen, the Passover is going to come, and if you don't take blood and put it across the doorframe of the home, the firstborn in that home will be killed. Right, that he is demonstrating faith and teaching the people of Israel to demonstrate faith in the blood that is going to protect them. Right, this foreshadowing, this shadow of God's rescue in the future. Demonstrating this faith, even though he had jumped the gun and attempted to do this in his own hands by murdering an Egyptian. At the Red Sea, they're actually showing unbelief and they're whining. They're, they're, they're complaining about, God, why have you brought us out here to die? Pharaoh's army is going to kill us. The Red Sea is here. We're trapped. And yet then they had to demonstrate faith as they walked in a terrifying situation with an army chasing them through the Red Sea like this miraculous moment. They demonstrated their faith. They didn't just stand there and say, yep, you were able to do that. Right? They had to, like they had to go. They had to walk in it and trust that God was rescuing and delivering them in that moment. The people of God... In, in, a, in a description that could have seemed really silly to walk around a city, right, as they're being mocked and ridiculed and humiliated and going, what is this doing? They could not see how God was going to work in the moment, and yet they're trusting his faithfulness as they move around the city. They couldn't see how it was going to fall or how it was going to work, but they trusted God. They demonstrated faith. And then Rahab, who was a foreigner, who was a harlot, Right, demonstrates faith in a God she had not even met yet but had only heard of. In protecting and hiding and giving rescue to the spies. So church, what we're going to see this morning is this, is that faith, right, trusts God for the impossible. Right, because Sarah has a baby in her old age. Abraham is described in Hebrews 11 as being, is like, is almost dead, right? He was almost dead when he has a kid. Right, like that, that God... We can trust him in faith for the impossible. And one of the impossible things that's happened is for those of you this morning who know and love and trust Jesus is that he saved you. 
Right? Like, we, we don't need to move too quick beyond that. That we were the enemies of God and we were dead in our sins. And if the fact that you loved him this morning, the impossible has occurred because the dead thing has been made alive. And God has rescued you. So do, are we trusting in faith God for the impossible? Second, right, faith believes the promises of God, whether they've yet been seen to come true yet or not. And so these generations were going, God's going to rescue his people. God's going to rescue his people. God's going to deliver us. God's going to give us the land. And they just keep passing on saying, believe it, he's going to do it. Believe it, he's going to do it. And now we stand saying, God's coming back for us. And he has prepared a place for us. And so whether we meet him in death or we meet him as he splits the sky, there is a place that's eternal for us. That we are meant to be with him. That all sin will be wiped away. And all sadness and all tears. And we will be with him forever. Because that's what we were created for. And what we were meant for. And so now we're going to navigate this life with that hope. Right? We're going we're to lean into those promises. Even though you haven't been given yet a picture of heaven. Or a day in which Jesus will split the sky. And so faith trusts God for the impossible. Faith Believes the promises of God and faith then demonstrates itself. It acts. It does something. And so what he is telling the Hebrews here is this. Don't go back. Lean in. Hold on. Persevere. Look at what your forefathers have done. Don't leave Jesus now. And so where we're going to spend the, the, the rest of our time this morning is this. Is in verse 25 in, in a way of how do we demonstrate faith this morning. Moses, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Church, Hebrews 11 begins to give us some insight into how we fight sin and temptation in our own lives. How do we war against these things? And first is that we look at Jesus. Right? That Abraham saw dimly. He could barely see, but he hoped in resurrection. When he had no reason to believe it other than that he trusted that God was faithful. And yet Jesus has been resurrected. He is walking and alive today. He is living and on the throne. He is a living king who hears your prayers. Who intercedes on your behalf. The resurrection gives us hope. Abraham saw the shadow and yet we see in fullness. The second was that... That Joseph was attempted to be sold into slavery, to kill. He was thrown into prison. He was lied about. And in the end, he'll tell his brothers, the things that man did to me, the things that you did to me were meant for evil, but God used them for good. Right? In Acts 2, as Peter is preaching, he says, look, wicked men wanted to kill Jesus, but God has turned it for good. Right? That God used the, the hands of men to do wicked things, and yet He has done great with it because it's where our salvation and our hope comes from. That's Acts 2.23. That at the cross, deliverance came. When, they appear, when, when we appeared to lose, when Jesus appeared to have lost... Because he was killed, he was crucified, and it looks like the enemies have won. As the people of God, the Israelites were up against the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army coming in to shoot fish in a barrel. And when it appeared that all was lost and all hope was gone, God intervened and delivered his people and wiped out his enemies. And at the cross, when it appeared that we had lost, that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, 
right? That God intervenes and is actually bringing our deliverance and is wiping out his enemies. Because at the cross was the death of death. Satan and death and sin were crushed because Jesus was victorious. And so he is, listen, he's bringing these past stories of the shadow of this and he's showing them the reality that we have the resurrection, that what people mean for evil, God uses for good, that deliverance has come. That in the Exodus, by blood, they put in their faith and the Passover occurred and they, they saw that God was able to rescue. And it's in the blood of Jesus today that we are trusting that our sins will be passed over. That we won't stand guilty and judged by them, but that in Christ's blood is covering us. That we have not just been um, forgiven of our sins, but we have been called innocent. Forgiven. His. That we have the perfection of Jesus covering us now. And the fifth thing is this, that the walls came down in this seemingly silly situation. A right of God just intervening. As the people wanted to do more, they wanted to fight, they wanted to attack, and yet God said, watch what I can do. And this morning for you, as you think about the sin in your life, the addiction in your life, the spiritual battles in your life, and you're like, what do I need to do? You need to trust God. Right? Because in that, that's where the walls come down. As we see God intervening and working on our behalf, and we are reminded that it is a spiritual war, a spiritual battle that is taking place, and not a physical one. And listen, the people demonstrated faith and they were obedient to what called them, God called them to do. But it was God who intervened to bring the walls down. It was not by their hands. It was by His. And so our faith is demonstrated. They saw at a distance. Listen to what he says earlier in Hebrews 11. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Let's look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So they're looking dimly and going, I trust God. And yet we get to see that Jesus then has laid the foundation of that city, of that building. That he is the chief cornerstone. That he has done what God had promised to do. And the Holy Spirit comes in and seals it and says, I'm a down payment of the promises of God to encourage you, to remind you that what he has said he would do, he has done, he is doing, and he will do. And that there is a city, a place prepared for you. It's what Jesus promises the disciples. It's what we see in Revelation. And so we have now a foundation in Christ that gives us a clear view of what's being built for us. And so he's saying, how are you going to walk away from this? Don't walk away from this. You have more than our forefathers in the faith to rest in and to trust in. And that you are no fool to give up the temporary fleeting pleasures of sin for something that will last forever. Listen, the world is going to scream at you, you fool. Gain comfort, gain ease, gain riches, gain reputation, gain pleasure, gain luxury. Because you only live once, and tomorrow we die. And yet he says, listen, you're not a fool when you put the temporary aside for the eternal, because we're not a temporary people. No one is temporary. You will eternally worship with your king, or you'll eternally be separated from him. 
this life isn't the end of it. There is an eternity. And so he says, Moses was able to see this even before Christ. And so he was able to put aside the fleeting pleasures of sin to trust God in what he had promised. And he was looking for in the invisible God. In Matthew 13, 44, it's, it's that the one who's walking through the field and discovers a treasure and he goes and he sells all that he has to buy the field. You would look like a fool to sell all that you had to buy an empty field unless you knew there was a treasure in it. This life, right, we can sell all that we have to gain the treasure, right, that we have in Christ. And we may look like a fool because why are you giving up riches and ease and comfort and reputation and all of these things? But if you see that Jesus is the eternal reward, that he is everything that we need, you're not a fool, you're wise. Are we resting in that this morning? Are you satisfied in Jesus? Do you see him as a reward? Because if you do... Sin begins to lose its taste. And it's bitter and you don't want it and you spit it out. The temptation begins to fall away because you see clearly what it is. You see sin rightly. So you see money and pleasure for what they are. You see power and reputation for what they are. That you would not look at Moses and say you're a fool for giving it up. But in that day... You're in the house of Pharaoh, the most powerful nation on the world, and you're going to leave that behind for a slave people? You're a fool, right? The world would have screamed, fool, you gave up everything. And yet Moses is the one who wasn't a fool. Because he was trusting in, the, in, in a God who was redeeming and rescuing and saving. And so today in our life, are we able to see through the deceitfulness of sin or not? I haven't shared this story in a long time, but there was um, years ago before we had kids, uh, which is beginning to be further and further ago, there was a little uh, Mexican food joint here in Pampa that Carmen and I were eating at one evening. And as we're having a meal, I had ordered um, a chili riano, and just the restaurant is no longer there. And we're, we're enjoying this meal, and as I'm eating about half of my chili riano, I look down and a cockroach comes running out of the half I hadn't gotten to yet. Right? And so I just real quick, I reach down and kill it. And I just kind of panic of like, I don't know what to do now. Because the restaurant is packed. I mean, every table is full. There's one poor waitress who's taking care of everyone. And Carmen's like, what's wrong? Because I'm like, I'm not eating anymore. And she's, I'm like, well... I don't see that chiliano the same as I did a few seconds ago. <laughs> My appetite is gone. <laughs> and so I, I waited until, I, mean, I just I told her what happened. I was like, I'm not making a scene. I don't want to f- freak everybody out, but we're not going to eat here anymore. And, you know. <laughs> and so in that moment, this thing that I had been enjoying and had an appetite for quickly lost my appetite for when I saw it rightly. When I saw the thing that was hidden in it, for what it was, it was no longer, it had no bearing on, I'm not, I'm not looking at it going, should I, should I not? It was a clear, not eating it. And not only that, I'll never eat anything in this place again. I don't, I don't ever want to be in this building again. Right? Because I saw it clearly for what it was. Church, if we see Jesus clearly for who he is, if we rest in his promises, then we can begin to see the deceitfulness of sin around us. And we'll see the bitterness of it and the trap that has been laid laid for us. And we'll begin to, to war against it 
and to hate it. Because here's the lie and the deceitfulness of sin. It is telling you this. If you miss out on this, you're going to miss out on great pleasure. Right? And it's whispering, God doesn't have this for you. You can only get it here. And so you're having to say, do I trust the promises of God? Or do I trust this sin is going to give me something that God cannot? That is the, that's the lie. That is the battle of our life. And yet Psalm 1611 tells us this. You make, me known, you make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If there was something that could give you more pleasure than God, it would be God. But he is the ultimate. And anything else would be a fleeting pleasure of sin. Listen, we are wrong if we tell our kids, if we tell ourselves that sin does not have pleasure. Because it does. But it's not lasting. And so we have to offer them the, the, the better thing. We have to remind ourselves of the better thing. The one that's lasting and eternal. Not the one that's temporary and fleeting. Listen, we have to ask ourselves, who is, who is offering the most to us? The most satisfaction, the most pleasure? Who promises it more? Is it the enemy who's lying or is it God? And then second, who can actually deliver it? Because the enemy will offer pleasure for a period until he has the hook in you. And then it's hard to get off. Right? Because you've, whatever you feed, your appetite will grow for it. And so are we feeding our appetite for sin? Or are we feeding it for Jesus? In Philippians 3, Paul says this in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Right? This is basically Moses, right? This is what Moses did. He's just like, I will put everything aside. Fame, reputation, power, money, pleasure. Right? Like, it's at his disposal. He says, I'll count it as rubbish if I can get God. And he was no fool. Church, this morning, the same question is for us. Is Jesus sufficient for you? Does he satisfy you? Do you want him? Or are we going to be bound up in the, the temporary fleeting pleasure of sin? And so for some of us, maybe what we need to start with this morning is this. is We need to confess our utter lack of satisfaction in Jesus. That he is merely a means to an end in our life. To gain us what we really want. Which is a relationship or money or power or security or comfort. Um, we, during this Christmas season, we have an advent calendar. And we, we'll ask Jude and Carson right now, hey, why do we celebrate Christmas? And the answer is, is because Jesus came and he's coming again. Right, and then there's they open it up, and there's a little chocolate in there, and it's just kind of this wanting to begin to set in them. But if if we're not careful, what happens is this: is they just walk because of Jesus, uh, He came and He's coming again. Give me the chocolate, right? That Jesus becomes a means to what we really want, and what we really want is the chocolate. What we really want is the thing that Jesus provides. Now, listen, Jesus brings a lot of gifts. He brings hope. He brings peace. He brings security. He brings love. He brings satisfaction. He brings all of these things and more with him. 
but the ultimate gift is him. And do we see him as the gift or simply the means to the things that we want? So we may just need to confess our lack of satisfaction, our, our, our willingness to use him instead of want him. The second thing is this, do we take him at his word? Are we in his word, studying his word, learning his promises so that we can lean into them? Because church, there is no place for coasting in faith. If you are coasting, you are drifting further, not closer. And lastly is this, what appetite are you feeding? Because it will grow. Sin is insatiable. And if you're currently feeding sin, whether it feels big and illegal or whether it feels small and controllable, its appetite will not be satisfied. It will continue to grow until it owns you. And you'll think it's this small thing that you can control until you realize that you're the one that's enslaved. And yet the good news is this, is that the walls come down. Not because of your effort or your ability, but because of the power of God in a spiritual battle to defeat the things that control us. And the power of sin has been crushed and broken at the cross. Right? But we still live in the presence of sin until we are with Jesus in glory. And so are you feeding your appetite for Jesus which will give you honest, clear eyes and mind and heart to fight your sin? Or are you feeding your sin and it's dulling your eyes to Jesus being enough or that he could ever actually satisfy? And so this Advent season, we celebrate a king who came who also had a king proclaim an edict that all boys should be killed. Who came to deliver us when all seemed lost. Who has given us access. Who has given us a future hope. And who has brought lasting peace. Would we see that as big and as beautiful and as glorious as it is. So that sin would look like the cockroach that it is. And if it's not right now. Would we ask God to give us eyes to begin to separate those two. As we delve into his promises. And as we do this together. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the honesty of of your word that tells us there is pleasure in sin. It just won't last. So, Father, this morning, for those of us who are bound in sin and who find it pleasurable, God, would we be honest and tell you that? Lord, and, and would we ask that the walls and, and deliverance that is needed when all hope is lost, whether it's at the Red Sea spiritually or at Jericho spiritually, God, that you would begin to bring deliverance because you do the impossible and you break the power of sin and you defeated de- our enemy and you've defeated death and you are alive. And so, Father, you win and you can break any stronghold in our life for your glory, for our good. And so, Father, would we be a people who would not be comfortable with just going through the rote habits of this life, but that we would feed our appetite for you, that we would strive to be near you and not coast or merely drift? Father, would our faith be demonstrated as your faith, sorry, as your love was demonstrated to us at the cross? God, we need you. Would you speak? Would you open eyes and minds and hearts even in these moments? And would we respond in faith? In Jesus' name, amen.